Good morning, everybody. Welcome. I got up really early this morning to go to a basketball tournament, and I had way too much coffee, so I'm going to talk really, really fast, and it'll be really good, right? So buckle up. Let's go. Um, here are the announcements for this week. First of all, um, in two weeks, that's May 20th, on Saturday from 9 to 1, Jason will be teaching a class called the Partnership Class. And so if Brookview is your church home and you have never taken that class, or even if you're interested in staying around Brookview for a while and you just want to know, hey, how do things work around here, that class is for you. It has all sorts of information about our church, how it runs, how it works, how Christianity works, um, and it is just really cool. So you will want to take notes. Don't worry. We provide the pens. It's no problem. Um, but please come to that. We would just so love to have you. We do provide snacks, and we get you some class materials. And so if you can RSVP to let us know that you're coming to that, that would be awesome. Um, and the way that you do that is by filling out that little Connect card that's on your seat. Or for those of you that are at home, you can go online and fill out the online communication card. And then the next Sunday, it's like a power-packed weekend, we are going to gather in here during our regular church service for something that we call the table. And that is an opportunity for us to sit around, share tables together, share a meal, and we are actually going to combine it with an event that we call Ignite. And Ignite is just basically what we call Brookview's family meeting. Um, and it is a chance to talk about what God is doing here, how we see him moving, and then just some technical stuff like how can you get involved and what are we, what are we doing in this next season of ministry. And that is a perfect way for me to, no, I don't want to launch into the next thing yet because we need help. Um, we are looking for people that can bring casserole dishes to that. We all make the same recipe. It's pretty easy to do. It takes about, I think it's like an hour in the oven before you get to church at 1030. Um, and we need like 14 of them. We had three people sign up last week for those. That's awesome. We have a ways to go. My oven will not fit 11 of them. So help me fill the gap there. And um, the way that you would say that you can bring that casserole dish is by filling out that connect card on your seat. And if you're online, by going online as well. If you have my information, you can also just text me or email me as well. And I will make sure that we put you to work on that. We do need help with setting up and tearing down as well if cooking is not your cup of tea. Um, we did find someone to help with coffee, so we're good to go there. And if you signed up for the coffee and you haven't heard from me, it's true. It was a long work week. <laughs> you will hear from me, though. Um, so, okay. Soccer club. Yeah, you guys. It's happening. We've reserved the field. Um, starting in March, early March, we started getting emails from people saying, when is soccer club? Did I miss the sign up? When is it going to open? And I was like, oh my goodness, let me get through Easter. But what a cool thing that people are so excited to make that a priority in their summer that they're just wanting to know when it is. It takes a whole lot of people, all of us working together to pull that off in so many different ways. We need coaches, we need assistant coaches, we bring everybody here for a big barbecue at the end of the week and we need grill masters and table setter uppers and 
all sorts of stuff. Administrative, administrative help to get kids checked in. The kids get to shop in a store at the end of the day with Brickview bucks that they've earned. And um, so we need people to run the store as well. We need secret shoppers that will shop for prizes before the soccer club even starts. So, so many ways for you to get involved. So for now, I would love for you to save the date. And um, if you think that you can help and volunteer in any way, it just kind of makes me feel better when I know, okay, there's a couple people that are gonna be there. Um, do we have a picture of our coaching staff last year? This is just our coaches. That is not any of the people that it took behind the scenes. So you can see we have um, 170 kids that came out last year, um, our biggest one yet, and I would imagine that we would love to grow, but we are limited by how many coaches that we get. And so we cut off our registration at a certain point because we want kids, the most important thing to us is that they feel seen, and valued, and we can't do that in a huge class of 20 kids. So we limit those class sizes so that we can look kids in the eye and high-five them and just encourage them and build into them. So they are not going to be Olympic-level soccer players at the end of the week, but I hope that they walk away feeling loved and seen. So that is the goal for that week. Loved, seen, and celebrated. If you have friends that you know you would like to invite to soccer club, that is also a really easy way for you to connect with your friends on sidelines and invite them. Our registration is open and you go to brookviewchurch.com forward slash soccer. We already have 78 kids signed up and we opened up our registration on Thursday. So pretty cool. Um, I, I think we're gonna, this is gonna work. Um, <laughs> but we do need to, so again, if you can help with anything, if you want to respond to anything in the morning, would you fill out that communication card or connect card that's on your seat or go online and fill one out as well? And that's it. revealed himself to all Israel after their liberation from Egypt, after the plagues and the parting of the Red Sea, when he revealed himself to them then in their ordinary, everyday, day-to-day -day life, he chose to use bread, manna that just appeared every morning for them. And when God wanted future generations to remember the story, their liberation from, from Egypt, from Egyptian oppression, he chose bread, a Passover meal that is still celebrated to this day in Jewish communities, right? Later, when Jesus wanted his followers to understand his impending crucifixion, he gave them the picture of 
bread. A loaf that he dramatically tore and distributed. This is my body broken for you. Eat it in remembrance of me. And all the way at the end of the biblical story, when God has brought everything to completion, Jesus said the kingdom of heaven will be like bread. The kingdom will be like a feast that never ends. So bread is a foundational image Jesus used to represent life with him. A picture that was confusing and disorienting at first, but for those that trusted in him and refused to give up, a picture that became, over time, more beautiful than anything they could have ever imagined. So last week we started this series called I Am. Long before Jesus walked the earth, God revealed himself to Moses. In that epic scene, right, with the burning bush, Moses said to God, what is your name? And God said, Yahweh, right, meaning I am. Then Jesus picked up on that theme, and he used it often to reveal his own identity. I am the good shepherd. I am the true vine. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the living water. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. In fact, the entire gospel of John is built around seven signs, these seven miraculous acts that are then connected to seven I am names. And that number seven was used by John very much on purpose. Seven is, seven is the Hebrew number for completion because the earth was created and our week consists of how many days? Seven. So John built his account of Jesus around seven signs, around the complete work of Jesus. And each sign is then connected to a divine name for Jesus. And up for today, you guys, is I am the bread of life. And I want to say out of, out of the, right out of the gate that I am indebted to a guy named Tyler Staten. Um, several of his insights into this passage have been very helpful to me. So here we go. You guys ready for this? Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It's happening whether you're ready or not. It's John chapter 6. The, the Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for all these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. So Jesus is intentionally setting up a, a, a scene to perform a sign. In other words, this is premeditated. A sign means this is not a haphazard miracle. This is a deliberate miracle intended to reveal something. This is a miracle that points beyond the spectacle itself to the identity of the miracle worker. So a sign is a miracle that points to a person. And from introductory verses, the ones we just read, you probably all know the rest of the story. I mean, even, even if you've never cracked a Bible open for yourself, you've probably, heard, you've probably heard about the one where Jesus takes a little kid's lunch and then he feeds thousands with it, right? But beyond the miracle, this is a sign, which means Jesus is up to something more than like super efficient catering. <laughs> Jesus is linking himself to a very familiar story for the Jewish people. He's demonstrating that God's very presence is now among them through him. And by linking his life and ministry to God's work in the past, he's preparing for them to understand. So just prior to the conversation with Philip in verses 5 and 6, 
John gives us a poignant detail in verse 4, one that we so easily just read past. John tells us the Jewish Passover festival was near. In other words, this, this miracle takes place just prior to the Passover celebration. Okay, the feast that commemorated Israel's liberation from slavery in Egypt and reminded them of how God delivered them through who? Have we read the Bible? <laughs> through Moses, right? Moses delivered Israel from Egypt. Um, and this is what's on everybody's mind because they're about to celebrate Passover, right? Moses, liberation, oppression, freedom, God's power. So let's think about what they're about to celebrate and just remember for a sec. The people of Israel had been enslaved by the Egyptians for how long? 400 years. So, so God revealed himself to, after crying out for generations, God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush, calling himself I am. And then he worked 10 plagues in Egypt, and then he parted the Red Sea so they, crossed, so they could cross to freedom. And on the other side, in the wilderness, how did they survive? On the way to the promised land, how did they eat? What did they eat? God fed them what? Manna. Okay, bread from heaven. And it came daily as they journeyed through the wilderness. This miraculous provision from Yahweh, from I am. So when an invisible but powerful God hears your prayers and responds and marches your entire nation from hard labor under oppression to a promised land flowing with milk and honey, a life characterized by freedom and prosperity, God says, you know what? It would be good for you guys to remember that. So he says, always remember what I've done. And how does he instruct them to remember? With a meal, with a Passover meal. This way to, to taste and to be satisfied and to remember not just who he was, but who he continues to be. I am who I am, right? I will be who I will be. So the burning bush, the 10 plagues culminating in the Passover uh, the passing over of, of the angel, the parting of the Red Sea, the pillar of the cloud and fire to guide them, water from a rock, quail, and, and the manna were all signs, and they all pointed to a person. They pointed to a God who delivers. Now, by the time we get to Jesus in John chapter 6, Israel's neck is now under the boot of a new oppressor, the Romans. And once again, they are crying out to God for a liberator, one like Moses. And so they're watching for signs, miracles to signal to everybody that the liberator has arrived. And one sign that they are expecting to see is that manna will fall from heaven again. See, Jesus is up to something here. He's using this sign to announce his identity. Jesus, like Moses, gives them bread in the wilderness. Okay, so jump, jump now to verse 12. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. So they filled 12 basketfuls with leftovers. Not 11, not 13, 12 baskets. Why is that detail important? Because this is not just about leftovers. This is a sign that is pointing to someone. And so details matter. This is a crowd of Jewish people. It's just before Passover. How many tribes comprised the people of Israel? Twelve. So if, if the miracle itself wasn't enough, Jesus uses the 12 baskets to make this thing even clearer. And the Jewish people 
clued in quickly to what was happening, okay? Verse 14. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Right? They're like, maybe, maybe this rabbi from Nazareth is the Savior, the Liberator, the Messiah, the one who will deliver us today like Moses did for our ancestors. They're looking around going, can you guys imagine? The one who will rescue the 12 tribes and provide bread for us in the wilderness. Surely this is the prophet who was to come. Could this really be it? Could this really be him? There's so much going on in the sign of the feeding of the 5,000, so much. And it's easy for us to, to see the miracle and think, well, that's cool. Jesus is so nice. He, like, feeds hungry people and stuff. I love Jesus. But there's a lot more going on here than just, like, a group meal. You guys, the psychology department at Princeton University, they used to conduct an experiment on selective attention. Any of you married to somebody with selective attention? <laughs> Don't point them out. So they had students peek through a little hole into a, like a box that had a room. And the students were given instructions beforehand. They were told there will be a, a certain object in the center of the room. And you will have a short period of time to study that object. And then you will fill out a quiz to see how much you noticed and remember. So the students would study this object intently as they looked through this little hole. And then there'd be a quiz on the details of all of it. And of course, most students could describe the object with great detail. Right? These are Princeton students, the brightest and the best. But there was one final question on this quiz, the real but hidden point of the entire exercise, which said, did you notice anything else about the room? And generally, the response to the question was, not really. Which is interesting, because this was a very unusual room. Like one of the three walls was taller than all the others. The ceiling and the floor were both slanted. The, it was warped entirely, but very few noticed any of that. Why? Because they weren't looking for it. Now, obviously, like selective attention can be valuable and helpful. I mean, we can't possibly process everything going on in the environment around us, and so our brains help us focus on what seems to be most important. But that means that sometimes when we, when we look at something intently, we fail to notice all that surrounds it. And sometimes what surrounds it can speak profoundly to what we're seeing. And this can happen in the feeding of the 5,000 story. You guys, there's a ton of important stuff surrounding this miracle. But it takes a second to look around the room and take it all in. But when we see how it all fits together, it is freaking awesome. You guys don't seem as excited about this as me. I, okay, so, so, so for a minute here, I, I'm, going to, I'm going to point out to you some of the stuff in the rest of, of the room. And just quick warning. This is going to get technical, and it's going to go in a lot of different directions. But only for a couple of minutes, okay? And then we'll see the whole room. And at the end of this, you're going to say, dang, that's cool. I hope. I hope. I hope. We'll see. We'll see what happens. So how does the feeding of the 5,000 miracle look when we see it inside the room as a whole? Well, it, it's way easier to see, actually, if we look at the same story 
as told in the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew's account of the life and ministry of Jesus, there's actually two mass feedings. So in Matthew chapter 14, Jesus feeds the 5,000. Then Jesus packs up and goes to a new place with a new crowd. And on a different day, not long after, in Matthew 15, Jesus feeds the 4,000. And if so, like if you're reading through Matthew, it can be confusing. And you're like, wait, did I, did I flip back a page? Like what's happening? Didn't, didn't I just read this? But Matthew is, is showing us something super cool. And it's more than just, wow, I guess Jesus really loves carbs. Um, sometimes Bible scholars describe something called a, a literary sandwich that is a technique that's used in Scripture. So what you get is like two parallel stories that act as two pieces of bread and then a few accounts in, in the middle that provide some, some detail. Okay, so, so this is what Matthew's doing. And in Matthew's sandwich, it looks like this, right? You have the feeding of the 5,000, and then Jesus walks on water, and then disagreement, he has some disagreement with some religious leaders about purity, and then there's the story of the faith of the Canaanite women, and then there's the feeding of the 4,000. So the first slice of bread is the feeding of the 5,000, and then you have these three stories filling the sandwich, and then you have the final slice, the feeding of the 4,000. But just as, as when you're eating a sandwich, you're, you're really not meant to like take it apart and eat one ingredient at a time. Like, if you want the full effect, you, you actually have to take a bite of the whole thing. Right, Tony? Right. Yes, you do. <laughs> so if you want to experience what Jesus is serving up, it's really helpful to take a bite of the whole thing. And so here comes the full bite. Yes, thank you for the enthusiasm. <laughs> By the way, is this, is this making anybody hungry? <laughs> Brooke, I was thinking we could go to Potbelly after church. Got you got portocellos already? Sandwich on my sandwiches on my list for today. <laughs> All right, well, it's not as good as pot belly. But I, I appreciate it. Okay, so story one, feeding of 5,000. Rabbi Jesus is in the territory of Israel. He's speaking to a crowd made up of Jewish people. And they get hungry. And he multiplies bread and fish, and he feeds them all. And afterwards, there are 12 baskets of leftovers, 12 baskets representing the 12 tribes of Israel, meaning Jesus is the bread of life for all Israel. Now, here come the middle ingredients for the sandwich. First, Jesus walks on water. After feeding the 5,000, Jesus puts the disciples in a boat and tells them to go across the lake. As they cross the lake that night, a massive storm rolls in, and so the disciples are freaking out, and they're fearing for their death. They're panicking. They're screaming, and, and, and then here comes Jesus to rescue them, and how does Jesus get to them? Anybody? He walks on the water, and when he gets to the boat, then he goes on a little stroll. He goes on a, like, on a stroll with Peter out on the water, and, and that kind of goes bad, and afterwards, Jesus, now on the boat, says to the disciples, you of little faith. Why did you doubt? Okay, now, physical mastery over a large body of water might parallel what in the Old Testament? Okay, Moses and the parting of the Red Sea, right? Moses touched the Red Sea with his staff, and it parts, and the people walked to freedom on dry ground. And so, again, we have a link between Jesus and Moses. Next, Jesus has a disagreement with the Jewish leaders about spiritual purity. 
the leaders believe that purity comes down to external factors, right? Ritual cleansing before meals, eating and not eating the right things. So Jesus challenges their deeply held beliefs, saying, you, you guys have it, you have it completely backwards. It's what comes out of a person's mouth that makes them clean or unclean, not what goes into it. What comes out of a person's mouth reflects their heart. And a person is clean or unclean based on the condition of their heart, not their practice of rituals. And then third comes the faith of the Canaanite woman. And we need to zoom in a little closer on this third one. Jesus goes from his disagreement with the Pharisees about spiritual purity to an encounter with somebody who'd be considered the most spiritually impure by the Pharisee standard. She's from Canaan. Okay, the Canaanites were the ethnic enemies of the Jews. They had violent conflicts going back over a thousand years by Jesus' day. The Canaanites were, were their sworn enemies, and, and not just a physical threat, but their, their pagan religions were a constant temptation for the Israelites. So for a thousand years, the Canaanites to the Jewish people had been a massive problem. And the Canaanites were sometimes referred to as the seven nations. Hang on to that. Okay, that will, be, that will be important. So Jesus has now traveled to a region that's not a Jewish area, and this Canaanite woman tries to approach Jesus. She's desperate for Jesus to come and heal her daughter. But the disciples urge Jesus to send her away. They're annoyed. Why? Because she is Canaanite scum. That is the commonly held Jewish view. And, what we're, and we're about to see that bias kind of play out. Verse 25, the woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. <laughs> you guys, what the heck? <laughs> this is not the Jesus that we know and love, right? What, the, what in the world is Jesus doing here? This does, this does not feel right. So, some, some people note that that Greek word translated dog here is not like their version of like a mangy mutt. It's better translated little dog, which implies a house dog, a pet. The Greek word is actually chihuahua. <laughs> it's, if, it's not. Okay. But you, you get the idea. So, so some people have suggested... Oh, Jesus isn't intending to be insulting because, you know, who doesn't love their little scruffy? But, you guys, only a pet-loving dog park Seattle culture could possibly argue that this is not offensive. In, in Jewish culture, a little dog is just as unclean as a big one. Now, this is, this is how the Pharisees and Jews thought of Canaanites. This was common. This is how they thought of all Gentiles like all non-Jews, as dogs. So, so question, does Jesus hold this same view for this woman? Well, of course not. Is Jesus callously degrading this person that's in need before him? Of course not. And so I, I've talked about this before. I actually did a whole message on it, and I'll summarize that entire message by saying this. Jesus uses the dog metaphor to provoke this woman into greater faith. 
He's drawing something more out of her by pushing at her just a little bit. And you think about what happens when an adult says to a child, no, you can't do that. You're not old enough, right? You're not big enough. You're not strong enough or whatever. And the child's like, oh, yeah. And then they do it, and they're like, I'll show you. And you're like, and it's just like, awesome. <laughs> you smile. Why? Because you knew the whole time that they could do it. You were, you were provoking them into something more. This, this is an example of Jesus being, you guys, a very skilled teacher. He's expressing the popularly held prejudice only to, in just a minute, blow the whole thing up. And ironically, and when you think about this, it's kind of like Jesus is playing devil's advocate. <laughs> oh, come on, that was awesome. <laughs> so so she, asked, she asked for help, and he says, it's not right to toss the children's bread to the dogs. And how is she going to respond to that? I mean, how easy would it be to just go, I'm out of here, that's offensive. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, and I imagine with a huge, warm smile, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. Jesus uses this moment to express something profound. And nowhere else in Matthew's gospel is anybody else's faith called great by Jesus. In fact, in the previous story, Jesus said to his Jewish disciples, you of little faith. And here, Jesus offers a woman considered spiritually bankrupt by, by his society like the highest praise of any stranger he ever encountered. Jesus is flipping upside down what it is to be a person of great faith. And so he gives her the bread of life and he heals her daughter. So that's the middle of the Matthew sandwich. And finally comes the second piece of bread, the feeding of the 4,000. So the scene is similar to the feeding from one chapter earlier. The crowds are following him and he teaches the masses and he heals the sick and it's late in the day and he's in a remote place and there's nothing to eat. So he asks his disciples to gather what they can and it turns out there's seven loaves of bread and a few fish. The scene is setting up almost identical to the scene one chapter earlier. There's just one major difference. You guys, Jesus has crossed the lake, and he's not in Jewish territory anymore. These people are Gentiles. This is not far from his encounter with the Canaanite women. This is a crowd of people just like that woman. And yet Jesus shows them the exact same compassion. And Jesus then performs the very same sign. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. Then he took the seven loaves and the fish, and when he had given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and they in turn to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Seven basketfuls of leftovers as in the seven nations of the Canaanites. Seven, as in the Hebrew number for completion. Seven basketfuls of leftovers for all of those that are outside of Israel. Like, do you see it? Do you see what Jesus is showing them? Do you see what Jesus is showing us? 
In Israel, Jesus feeds 5,000 Jews, Israelites, and there are 12 baskets left over. Outside of Israel, Jesus feeds 4,000 non-Jews and seven basketfuls are left over. Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life for all people. I'm the one who gives life, not just to the descendants of Abraham and the people of Israel, but to every person on the face of the earth, to the most forgotten, to the most disqualified, most marginalized, most dismissed. I've got a place of honor for you at my table. See, the, these two miracles, they're like, they're like really good on their own. You guys, when you get a bite of the whole thing, it's delicious. Every move Jesus makes here is so, it's so charged with meaning. And so that's some of the other stuff in the room that we can miss. Okay, back to our scene with John in John 6. The next day, after the feeding of the 5,000, the crowds come searching for Jesus, but Jesus is really concerned about their hearts, about their motivation. And so he says, verse 26, very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. You're dazzled. You tasted the bread, and it even widened your eyes for a moment in wonder, but you did not see the person that delivered you the bread. You missed the sign that the whole thing was pointing to. He goes on, do not work for food that spoils but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. There's so much bigger, there's something so much bigger than you can see happening right now, right in front of you. This is a, about a lot more than physical nourishment. This is about the fullness of life coming to you, welling up in you, and enduring forever. The, the, like life that is truly life, coming to you through me. Life that begins right here, right now, and will never be extinguished. And he's like, do you see it? Jump down to verse 30. So they asked him, what sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? What sign will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. They're like, listen, Rabbi. Moses gave us bread from heaven, not just once. You're not awesome yet. He gave it to us day after day after day after day, year after year, and we have been waiting on a deliverer like that, one to free us from this Roman oppression and lead us to independence and prosperity like Moses. Are you the one like Moses, Jesus? You seem to be saying you are, so if you are, then do the bread thing again. Or show us some other sign. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Don't you see? It wasn't, it wasn't Moses, but God that provided for you in the wilderness. And now God is up to something infinitely bigger, like life enduring for the entire world. Do you get it? Sir, they said, always give us this bread. <laughs> They're stuck. They're stuck in their paradigm. 
They are fixated on physical bread, and they cannot see the, the whole room. They can't see the kingdom among them. Like, they're like, today's a new day, Jesus. Manna comes daily. If you're the new Moses, where's the bread? With Moses, the bread came every day, and we had a great meal yesterday, but if you're truly the deliverer, then keep it going. And you have to imagine Jesus is kind of exasperated. Verse 35, then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Don't you see something greater than physical bread is being offered to you? At this, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They don't see it. They can't get it. They want a certain kind of Savior. And because they're looking for one thing and Jesus is another, they're entirely confused by what they're seeing and they can't, they can't perceive it. They want freedom from Rome. They, they, they want something to satisfy their physical hunger. Jesus wants to free them from sin and death and to satisfy their deepest human cravings forever. So in, in one final attempt to explain... Verse 53, Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. You will enter true life if you let me give it to you. He's like, it's such a beautiful exchange, right? My righteousness for your failure my wisdom for your confusion, my love for your hate, my innocence for your guilt, my resurrection for your inevitable death. It is such a beautiful exchange. Only, you guys, Jesus didn't say it like that. What he said was, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Now, for a long time, I, I would read this. I would read this, and, and it just, I just think to myself, Jesus, what are you doing? That's bad leadership. I mean, why, why did you have to put it that way? I mean, come on. Like, Jesus, you know that sounds like cannibalism. <laughs> right? And these are Jewish people. This is not going to go well. Was it really necessary to lose hundreds, if not thousands, of followers over a misunderstanding like this? But you guys, now that I've, I've followed Jesus for a few decades, I see this a little bit differently. The people listening to Jesus that day had a paradigm for spiritual life. They thought they knew what they didn't know at all. They knew what God would do, liberate them from Rome. They knew what the deliverer would be like, Moses. And they were stuck in their paradigm. And so they could not see the rest of the room. And inside their paradigm, so much of what Jesus said and did made no sense. Jesus is trying to give them a brand new paradigm, a bigger one, a far better one, but they're not ready for it. They can't receive it. So instead of receiving his words as beautiful as life, they're offended and they walk away from the Savior. In their confusion, they abandon the very source of hope itself. Did you, did you guys know that the human body can't process raw wheat? Did you guys know that? 
So like if you and I tried to live off of like raw wheat, we might be able to eat a, a few heads of grain, but if we tried to eat enough to actually be nourished, it would make us sick. Like it, it turns your stomach and causes nausea and maybe worse. So unless wheat is ground down into flour and dough and then baked into bread, or if you prefer pasta, <laughs> a nice fettuccine, it cannot be digested. Wheat must be processed before it can be life-giving, right? And it's like this word from Jesus, I am the bread of life. It has to be processed. Only, only later, after a, a, a time of processing, a time of seeing the whole room, did this, did this begin to make sense and become beautiful to the disciples. And so after three decades of, of following Jesus, here's what I've discovered. Sometimes a word from God has to be processed to be received as good news. You guys, it's, it's hard to follow Jesus for very long without having multiple experiences like this. Like you don't do this thing very long before you're reading through the Bible and you come across something hard to digest. Some of what Jesus says and does for me, it just like resonates immediately. Right, like, like the woman caught in adultery. Like, whoever among you is without sin, cast the first stone. I'm like, yeah, Jesus. I was like, yeah, Jesus, when I wasn't even a Christ follower yet. I was like, that's good. I love that the first time I heard it. It went down easy. But other things have taken, a, t- taken decades of processing to become beautiful to me. Things that were once confusing or offensive or outside my paradigm things that didn't fit with my previously held views or the dominant worldview of the culture that surrounded me. Those things, when I first read them or heard them, were like nails on a chalkboard. But after enough processing, many of those things have become beautiful to me. Now, not all of them, of course. I'm still, I'm still processing lots of stuff. But many things that initially bothered me, I now see as beautiful. Jesus says to the crowd, I am the bread of life. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood will discover the eternal kind of life. You guys, that is good news. That's beautiful. But the tragedy is most in the crowd don't stick around for the processing. I mean, even Jesus' most inner circle of disciples, the 12, they have no idea what he's saying either. They're looking at each other like, did he just really say that? But they stayed around for the processing. Verse 67, you do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. You know, for all the times, Peter gets a bad rap, for all the times that Peter, like, stuck his foot in his mouth, right? He nailed this one. And this was a big moment, and Peter got this one right. Jesus has not revealed a God we can perfectly understand, but he has revealed a God we can perfectly trust. I can trust the God who, even when he doesn't make my suffering go away, enters my suffering alongside of me. I can trust the God who doesn't sit from afar in heaven saying, hey, get over it. 
I can trust the one who came as a human being and endured everything that I've endured in my life except worse. I can trust the God who, even when he's seen the very worst in me, will never leave me or forsake me. I can trust the God who, even when he says something that turns my stomach, will then walk beside me every step of the way in the processing of it. And I can trust the God who does not condemn me for things that I can't see yet, but patiently opens my eyes as I keep looking in his direction. Some things have to be processed in order to be revealed as good news. But every word from the lips of Jesus, you guys, is good news. Many walked away. And Peter wasn't any less offended or confused. I mean, he felt lost like all the rest of them did. But his response was, I'm staying. I'm staying because I believe you are who you say you are. I've seen enough and I've heard enough to believe. So I'll sort out the confusion and the offense right alongside you, Jesus. I don't get it either, but I'm staying. Staying means both resonance and dissonance are invitations to maturity, both. We need them both. You guys, if every stinking thing you read in the Bible the first time you ever read it made sense to you, then it's not a deeply spiritual book. (laughs) Resonance and dissonance are both invitations to maturity. That stuff that's like, what the heck? That spurs and and churns and gets us thinking. And it means that some things will be immediately nourishing to my body, while others will have to be processed before they become good news. The point of the thing is, it's all good news. So what do you do when you run into a part of the Bible you don't like, or you want to look away from, or you wince at in offense, or you're just totally baffled and confused by? What do you do? You stay. Staying means when I encounter biblical passages that don't resonate with me, I hold my most real and honest questions before God in prayer. Staying means I continually ask for his help to understand. And staying does not mean that you will then, if you do that, immediately have a satisfying answer. It means where you go with your questions matters. And it can be so tempting when we can't square our already held beliefs or our life experiences or what we're hearing from the culture around us with the teachings of Jesus to not stick around and process the way that Peter did. The temptation is to then just withdraw, withdraw from community, withdraw from anything that would expose me to the things that are unsettling, and then I create a pseudo-community built out of pain or confusion for people that feel the same things I do. We find people who share in our disillusionment, people who are put off by the Bible or the church or religious people or whatever in all the same ways that we are to share in our fellowship of doubt and pain. And we don't take our questions or our struggles or our doubts to people who are actually walking with Jesus still, people who might challenge us or walk alongside of us or process with us or maybe even occasionally gently push back a little bit. We find people who share our unique brand of disappointment with God or the church, and we seek a community based on common disbelief. But you guys, that kind of community is like the spiritual equivalent to ibuprofen. It might numb the pain for a moment, but it is incapable of healing anything. 
Our temptation is to find community with others to mask our pain. But the tragedy of that is that we will never discover the nourishment of what the raw wheat can become then. Where we go with our questions matters. And what's at stake in all of this? I mean, what's really at stake with where we go? Well, what's at stake is the beauty of everything that Jesus is trying to give to us. I mean, you think about the 12, right? They stayed and they processed. And the door to a whole new reality was opened to them. So fast forward to the Last Supper now. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And now his words start to take on new meaning. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it. And gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Do they get everything now? No. But it's starting to get a little bit clearer. Later that night, Jesus would be arrested and tried, and the next day crucified. And they, they still don't get it, and Peter has this like horrific moment of utter failure, right? Three denials of Jesus. I mean, every one of the disciples is in utter crisis. But it didn't catch Jesus off guard because he said to them at at the Last Supper, he said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, Simon, I believe in you. You're going to fail, but when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. You guys, this is life. This is real life. There's confusion. There's, there's sifting. There's doubt. There's questions. There's failure. There's struggle. But on the other side of all of it, if we stay, if we keep following, there's great beauty. See, for wheat to be made into bread, you guys know it has to go through like a really violent process. First, it's, it's harvested when it's cut down like at the root, and then comes threshing. The, the wheat stalks are beaten against a hard surface until the, the grain shell is removed, and then there's winnowing when the chaff is stripped away from the wheat, and then it's ground into flour and then kneaded into dough, and finally it's baked under a furious heat until it rises into delicious bread. In time, the processing of the disciples would come to completion. After a period of intense confusion and doubt and pain, they would encounter a risen Jesus who would explain it all to them again. But now their paradigm is ready to shift. Their vision of the kingdom and the Messiah, their vision of freedom and liberation and prosperity. And the the words of Jesus to eat his flesh and drink his blood would now become bread to them. It would nourish them beyond their wildest imagination. And they would walk then alongside thousands of others, and they too would come to see and understand. You guys, but it took a whole lot of processing to get there. 
Jesus of Nazareth was the great I am. He was Yahweh in flesh and blood, the bread of life sent from heaven to nourish all that we are. And, and do you know what Jesus taught about heaven, what, about like what eternity in the presence of God will feel like? It's not a church service that never ends. And if you're feeling like, thank God, <laughs> I don't blame you. What will eternity in the presence of God feel like? It's not a church service that never ends. You guys, it's a feast that never ends. That's the picture. One where the bread never runs out and the wine just keeps flowing. A feast where no one is hungry, everyone eats and is fully satisfied. A table where all have access to the bread of life and every one of us is invited. You guys, this is really, really good news. A, a recent sociological study was conducted to determine what are the phrases that bring the most joy to the human heart. And here's what they discovered. Here are the, the top three in order. Top three phrases that bring joy to the human heart. I love you, I forgive you, and dinner's ready. And you guys, I, or you think about it, I love that. I love that because in a sense, it sums up the entire ministry of Jesus. I love you. I forgive you. And dinner's ready. What is God like? Jesus said, I am the bread of life. There may be bits of, of him that for you, there probably will be bits of him that for you just sit like raw wheat, right? And that's okay. You stay around for the processing. Why? Because it's worth it. Um, this morning, we're, we're going to take communion together, and we're going to do what followers of Jesus have done for 2,000 years. We're going to recognize that we are invited to the feast and say yes. We're going to remember the one who loved us and laid his life down for us, the one who was raised to new life as the first of many. So after I pray in just a second here, you can come up anytime during worship, and you can you can kneel here and you can spend some time in prayer and reflection if you want. Um, you can just take the bread and the juice right there. There's garbage cans here and in the back. You can take it back to your seat if you want. There's even a gluten-free option labeled in the back. Thank you, Jane Davis. But everybody, you guys, everybody is welcome to the table. You don't, for our church, you don't need to have taken a class or anything. Here's how it works. If you want the bread of life for yourself, then come. Father in heaven, I, I read this story and think back to my journey with you and all of the resistance I had to, to even deciding to put my faith in Jesus for so long. And then all of the struggles that I've had since and all the things that I've encountered that have that have, have not gone down and, and been digested easily. And yet you have met me again and again and begun to reveal things to me that are more beautiful than anything I could have ever imagined. And when I think about my life and some of the stuff that I've walked through, 
I can't imagine having walked through that without your presence and the hope of, of your kingdom. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your willingness to endure what we endure on our behalf so that we can be set free. We can be set free to experience joy and hope and peace and life and love and grace and compassion. You are the bread of life. Teach us how to experience you as such.